Welcome back to Stacktrace, the podcast where we talk about Apple, news and rumors and technology and programming and life in general from two developers' perspective. And those two developers are both me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Rambo? I'm doing great, John. Uh, I heard there's um, a new Mac chip out there. Oh man, I can't wait to talk about that. Well, number one, I can't wait to talk about it. But number two, I even can't wait more, if that's something you could say, <laughs> to actually get it. Because I have ordered my Mac Mini. It's on the way. I'm getting it probably in early December, if the estimates are correct. Because I did wait for like one day to order it, and <laughs> it was already back-ordered. Wow. Uh, but I'm really excited about getting mine. What about yours, Rambo? Are you Did you order one as well, or what's going on there? That's what you get for being conscious with your money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did um, order one. Of course, for me, it's more complicated because they're not really available here yet, but I have someone who's going to bring one for me from uh, overseas. But uh, it's probably only going to be here by the end of December. But I might be getting another one before then. We'll see. I'm not going to talk about it more today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Being secretive as always with your hardware. Oh, yeah. And uh, speaking of our ambitions with M1 and things like that, what have you been up to? What a great segue. You're getting really good at this, Rambo. <laughs> You're becoming a true segue master, I must say. There you go. Uh, so uh, just a few days ago, I made an announcement on Twitter and the announcement was that uh, when I reach 200 weekly articles, which at the time of recording will be in four weeks from now, I am not going to write weekly articles anymore. Oh. And uh, what I'm instead going to do is that I'm going to evolve my website a little bit into using a new format and to kind of tweak things a little bit. And I felt that 200, it's a very nice round number to end this weekly article series that I've been working on since 2017. So wow. it's been almost four years now at this point. And uh, yeah, I just felt like it was time for a change. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop writing articles. Of course not. And quite the opposite, really. I am definitely planning to continue writing articles for you know, the foreseeable future. For as long as people read, I will keep writing. And I am planning to be as active as I've been on Swift by Sundell and to keep podcasting and keep doing this show, of course, and everything. So I'm not retiring just yet, Rambo. This is not a retirement <laughs> announcement. But it is just ending that weekly article series because, you know, it has been running for a, for a while. And anytime you do something for, you know, a long period of time, uh, you know, at some point you just feel like you want to change things up a little bit, right? Like you want to do something new. And although I, like I mentioned, I still want to write articles, I want to do it in a slightly different way uh, in four weeks time. I want to change things up a little bit. Yeah, I feel like this makes sense. Uh, and uh, it's very easy for people, especially the ones who've been following you for a long time to uh, be um, upset, not in terms of like upset with you, but uh, in terms of sad uh, about this uh, possible change because people wh when people don't like change, right? And and when right. change happens, people tend to assume the worst, right? <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> in this case, like people read, I'm not gonna be writing a weekly article anymore, and they think like, oh, John is retiring and i'm never gonna read anything from him again and it's the end uh, it's no it's uh, calm down like it, it's not that bad uh, <laughs> so uh, i think it, may, it makes sense and this is probably going to give you more flexibility in terms of how you do your writing and, and publishing on your website 
which I think is great. I, I think the weekly thing every Sunday uh, made sense probably uh, until now and to keep you doing it for as long as you've been doing it. But yeah, uh, eventually people need to change something. And I think you've chosen, like you mentioned, a nice round number to, to do the change at. Exactly. Because what has happened during those 200 weeks is that I've gone from, you know, we have to remember that I started originally writing these articles on Medium, just like <laughs> really short posts. They were like two or 300 words or something, just a few code samples, just sharing some basic ideas. And it just grew from there. And I've just been following that same format without really tweaking it much. Uh, I say that, but what has happened during those 200 weeks is that the articles have gotten a lot longer, a lot more complex, especially since I started working more with Swift Python DLS as one of my main jobs that I do, uh, I've really had much more time to dive deeper and write more thorough, like deep dive articles. And I really enjoy doing that. And I want to keep doing that kind of article as well. But doing that every single week has also kind of kind of locked me in into doing just this every week, right? Mm -hmm. Where some weeks I might want to do something completely different. And of course, this is all like, on me, this is something that I decided. There's no one else like forcing me to, you know, always write this kind of article. But I feel like setting that expectation that there will be a weekly article every week, right? That's in the name. <laughs> is is like it just kind of locks me into this format. And now that I've done it for 200 weeks, I just feel like I want to change the format up a little bit. So my plan is to, like I mentioned, keep writing, but it will be more of like a, a feed of different kinds of articles. So what I want to do is I want to keep doing the deep dive style articles. I also want to do much shorter articles. Like if I have just a little technique that I want to share that makes sense to share in of its own, I could do that through my tips section on my website. But those articles have also grown over the years to also become <laughs> almost like real long articles like if you look at the last couple of ones they're like 700 words or something like that's a proper article that's not just a tip anymore so those are going to kind of get merged into one feed because they they are almost the same at this point uh, then i want to do different kinds of coverage as well i want to for example write about when there's something new happening in swift evolution or something in the swift or ios developer world in general i want to be able to write about that uh, if i just want to like review a developer tool or something i want to be able to write about that so it's all about trying to kind of unlock the format a little bit, make it a little bit more wider and freeform and not just say, you know, here is the website. I have these N number of sections because I could also just keep adding sections, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to instead simplify things and merge them in and say, okay, if I'm going to write something, does it really matter if I call it like a Q&A article or a tip or a weekly article? It's all just articles. So it's all going to be merged in under one article umbrella and I'm just going to keep writing on that. I think that's going to be simpler for everybody. Uh, the only downside really is that I know that a lot of developers in the community have... You know, this is something I'm really grateful for, by the way, and, and I'm, I feel it's really cool, is that I hear from people all the time that they are, have built around little routine around my routine. So, for <laughs> example, they will come in on Monday morning to, to their work. I, I guess now they're working from home, but they will turn on their computer on Monday morning, they will get their cup of coffee, and they will read my latest article because it was... You know, it doesn't matter where in the world you are, whichever time zone you're in, on Monday morning, there will be a new article there. And that routine I will, you know, kind of break now a little bit. And that's kind of part of it is that I wanted to break some of these routines to, you know, make things a little bit more exciting and fun again and to give me more flexibility. But the good news is that you can still open up Swift by Sandella Monday morning if you want, because 
I still think I will post at least one article every week, so then you can just read it on Monday morning, right? Or whenever you want. So I think it will just give everybody, myself included, more flexibility, and I think the site will become better. That's at least my plan. I, I'm not planning to make things worse, uh, but I felt like a good point to like end this series that it all started with at 200. Maybe I'll pick it up again in the future. We'll see, but there will still be articles on the website. It will just be a slightly different format. Yeah, I think the the thing about a routine, and it happens a lot with with podcasts as well. Um, you don't need to like read an article the day after it was released. Like you're not writing news; you're writing technical articles. So it doesn't really matter if you read it this week or next week. So what I do in terms of my reading and also my listening and watching material is I keep putting them on whatever buffer there is like for reading stuff it's safari's reading list for videos it's usually youtube's watch later playlists and for podcasts i just keep them on overcast and i have my routine of when i read or when i watch or when i listen to specific shows or or, or articles or youtube channels and then i just do my routine like it, it doesn't matter if like i'm listening to the podcast episode that came out yesterday or five days ago, unless it's like a super news sensitive topic. And then in that case, I just skip that episode. But yeah, I think you can adapt your own routine to these things. You don't need to depend on the provider of the content setting a routine for you. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good point. And also, since you bring up podcasts, that's something that we've done with this show as well. We've changed the format of it multiple times. Yep. And I think that's also really important is that if you just keep the same format over and over again, when you're in a routine, things are predictable, which also means that they're a little bit less exciting than they could have been. So for us, it's really important in order to keep this show fresh and fun, both for us to produce, but also for you, the listener, to listen to. We change things up a little bit every once in a while. You know, we, we introduce things like our poker episodes or we invite guests sometimes on the show and things like that just to make it fun and, and new and exciting. And I feel the same way about my writing as well. Sure, I, within the you know, weekly article uh, title or section, I could theoretically write anything, but it's become like a format that I've been using for a while. And I just feel like changing it up and to introduce some excitement into it, both for my sake, but also for the community's sake and for my reader's sake to feel like it's something new. Even though I will still be writing about Swift, it will just be a little bit different. And I, I hope that it will feel exciting for my readers, just as it feels exciting for me. So I still have four weeks to go with these articles, so I'm not at 200 yet. Uh, so I will keep doing that until I hit that milestone, and then we can celebrate after the 200 mark. <laughs> nice. Um, curious to see what happens. Looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. So uh, speaking of milestones, you have reached a quite significant milestone, something that we've been talking about for a long time on this podcast now, and that's that you've shipped everybody too. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, if you think this means we're not going to talk about everybody anymore, you're wrong because... <laughs> <laughs> Just like how we didn't stop talking about static site generation, you know, after publish shift as well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm still doing uh, what I consider to be heavy development on the app. Like there, there are these times when an app is just in maintenance mode, but right after shipping a new app or shipping a major update of uh, an app like AirBuddy 2, which is 
almost like shipping a new app to some extent. Uh, you still are under heavy development. At least that's how I work. Like I'm still working as hard as I was uh, a week before shipping to uh, figure out the first uh, major issues. Well, there aren't any like huge issues so far. No, no like show-stopping bugs. Like the app crashes for fifty percent of the users. Nothing like that, fortunately. But there are some issues that I need to to work out. And uh, everybody, two dot one is just around the corner. Oh, that's awesome! Really exciting. So what you just mentioned there, I like to call that the 1.0 illusion. <laughs> and in your case, it's like the 2.0 illusion. I know it wasn't an illusion for you, you planned for it, but it's very easy when you're a developer to think of your 1.0 as this big release, and then once you do it, like you can finally take a vacation. <laughs> but unfortunately, that doesn't tend to be the case. It tends to be that you ship your 1.0, and then you immediately have to follow it up with lots of work to fix bugs that you know you didn't catch during the beta phase you have to you know maybe fix those final features that you didn't have time to finalize for the 1.0 and so on and so forth so you know that 2.1 release or 1.1 release that, that you're working on right now that tends to be a busy time yeah so in terms of issues i've had to release an emergency update right after shipping 2.0 so the 2.0 ended up being 2.0.1 which is an emergency fix for a registration issue, which wasn't seen during the betas. So yeah, that's always fun. Uh, and uh, also there were some issues with my pre-ordering setup and the delivery emails with the system I I'm using that I had to figure out, but it's all uh, pretty much settled by now. So uh, my support queue has gone back to normal. Because right after a major update or an initial release, your support queue is usually quite uh, high because you have lots of different types of, of people running into different types of things. Um, also, I learned that, remember the onboarding we talked about? Yeah. That was very much a good thing that I did that um, because I didn't have any sorts of support requests like I did with version one of the app. Uh, and of course, many people who are getting the 2.0 are actually V1 users, so they know the app already. But I didn't have the sort of issue I had with new users with V1 where people didn't understand how the app works. Because right. this is very much an invisible app of sorts. Like You have to know what it does before trying to use it, otherwise it kind of won't make sense for you. Uh, and I think the onboarding really delivered on that for new users so that new users know what the app is about before they start using it. Uh, so I think that was very much needed and did the work correctly for me. That's awesome. Yeah, because installing an app like AirBuddy can sometimes be a little bit like anticlimactic almost. <laughs> like you install the app, you launch it, and then nothing happens. And you're like, <laughs> okay, what D didn't the app install? But it just runs in the background. It just does its job. And that's the beauty of things like AirBuddy is that, and we've talked about your process of building it and your design philosophy as well, that you want it to feel like an extension of the system, like a utility that just runs in the background. It does its job. It helps you connect to your devices and, and so on. But it just it's just there in the background silently without consuming a lot of resources. Uh, but that is also a challenge from just a kind of communications perspective. And that's why you, you introduced this onboarding because 
it can be difficult for users to like fully grasp what the app is capable of and what it's actually doing if it's just silent in the background. Yeah, exactly. Also, another thing I was worried about, uh, well, actually two things. One of them was the upgrades from V1 to V2, and I was uh, a little bit worried that maybe some V1 users would find the new version too complicated, uh, not in terms of how it is to use, but that it would have too much stuff and that it would maybe some of this new stuff would get in the way of the workflows of V1 users. Uh, of course, I did take that into account while designing and, and developing version 2, but you never really know that stuff until it's actually in the hands of users. Uh, and fortunately, that was not an issue. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. And also the other thing I was worried about, um, I wasn't that worried about it because, well, I knew the difference and uh, the new stuff that's coming with an even further update after 2.1. But Big Sur adds quite a bit of stuff around uh, AirPods and things like that. And uh, some people were even like wondering, oh, was everybody Sherlocked with a Big Sur? Um, and kind of maybe depending on how you look at it. Uh, so if your workflow is like you want to click somewhere to change listening modes, for instance, to switch between noise cancellation and transparency on, on your AirPods Pro, then maybe you don't need AirBuddy anymore if that's all you use it for. But the main thing that changed with Big Sur was first the, the support for auto-switching, which is also on iOS 14, which is extremely flaky uh, for most people. And I've actually disabled it on all of my devices because it just switches too eagerly, like it steals your mm -hmm. AirPods <laughs> when you, you least expect it. Almost every time I get on a video call, <laughs> I always have to like turn Bluetooth on and off and really struggle to like get my AirPods to pair with my Mac. The iPhone is like holding on to them. It's like, my AirPods, my, I'm not letting <laughs> these go. There's a mine. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so this auto switching, even though it's, it's quite neat, uh, I think it's still not quite there yet. So th that's okay, but I think for most people who use AirBuddy for like automation stuff, like changing listening modes uh, when connecting automatically and toggling the microphone on and off, or if they want a global keyboard shortcut to toggle listening modes, which is a new feature of AirBuddy 2, I think for those users, it, it still has a lot of value, not to mention the interface and all of the stuff around peripherals with magic handoff and seeing the state of other Macs running AirBuddy. So I've expanded the app so far beyond what the system offers that I, I, I feel like most people still see a lot of value in it. Yeah. And the number of people who have reported back about finding it not as useful on Big Sur is very minimal. So um, it seems to be like, like most people have the same impression that I do. That's really great. And we've talked about this before, that that is, in general, I think, a good strategy to have when you are building some kind of system utility-like application where Apple tends to eventually Sherlock these kinds of things to a certain extent. So, you know, if you are providing some kind of functionality that extends the system, adds a lot of convenience add some kind of powerful features, then chances are eventually that Apple will notice that and they will be like, hey, this should be a part of the operating system, right? Yeah. And admittedly, like even with AirBuddy, you know, 
making the way AirPods interact with a Mac better out of the box is you know, good. That's something that Apple should be doing. But, you know, your strategy here, which, you know, again, I think is the correct one is to say, well, what can I do more? Something that Apple probably won't do, something that power users will find very, very nice, something even people who just have a bunch of devices and they want to communicate between them easier or see stats or some of the other things you mentioned. Like, that's what you can focus on because that's something that Apple probably will, will never say never, but, you know, they will probably not do that kind of like detailed feature because they tend to go for the mass market rather than depth for each given feature. Yeah, exactly. I've even built like the equivalent of screen time for AirPods, like where you can right. see the, the stats <laughs> and see which uh, side of your AirPods is draining the battery more quickly and things like that, which I think uh, many people find at least interesting, if not useful. Yes, that's always fun, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm happy with the release. I'm still very, very busy with uh, doing support and also uh, developing 2.1, which is coming out probably this week because it, it does have quite a few fixes and also a little bit of new feature in there. That's because it's uh, .1 and not .0 or something. Um, but yeah, very happy. Nice. Sticking to those semantic versions. That's very nice. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you one thing, you know, as a kind of little post-mortem here. I mean, everybody's <laughs> not dead, but, you know, post-shipping. Um, what's your general process when you ship a 2.0 or a 1.0, like an initial release of a product? When you start getting all of this feedback from your customers, whether those are bug reports or feature requests or people asking questions, like... How do you take all of that feedback, which sometimes can be a little bit overwhelming, how do you take that and kind of incorporate it into your development process? Like, how do you prioritize what to work on for the follow-up release? Yeah, I haven't reached uh, David Smith level of support queue, like uh, where you measure emails per second. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it's emails per day uh, now. Uh, and right after shipping, it's usually like emails per hour. Uh, so that's uh, very manageable, even though it is a little bit overwhelming. Um, so, of course, things are categorized into bugs, feature requests, or like maybe usability issues where the person didn't know how to use a feature of the app. That's also another big category. So for this third category, I usually notice patterns like someone will... Uh, send something and another person will send something very similar and it's just like something that's not clear maybe how, how it can be used and for those now that I have a help center I'm actually writing help articles so just before we started recording I, I got an email about something that was very similar to another thing and something I realized that might not be very clear from just looking at the app so I wrote a support article basically the same thing I replied in that email, to teaching the user how to, to solve uh, the problem they wanted to solve, I wrote a support article for it. That's very nice. And that's something that maybe in the future I might want to change something in the app itself or add some maybe some tip during the onboarding or something like that. But for now, I, at least I have like a canonical answer. So now when someone asks the same question, I can, I can just refer them to that article and it's going to have everything they need. For uh, bugs, um, I have so I have two mechanisms where people can send uh, bug reports or feature requests, and it's from within the app itself, or they can email directly. And most people just use the app, 
And that's nice because then I get an email with a, basically like a ticket number that my system generates. And when it's something that I need to address and I don't have an issue on my GitHub for it, I open an issue on my GitHub and I actually prefix the issue on GitHub with the support request number so that I can later cross-reference those and know that this particular issue was generated by this request number. And of course, I could be doing that automatically, but it's, it's way better if I manually like do some triage on the requests and then open issues for when they are ready and, and when I have all of the information that I need. Uh, and other general feedback and, and, and types of uh, emails I get, most of them are like feature requests. If I find the, the request interesting or that it has like a neat idea, I then file it on GitHub for my backlog and eventually I will look at it. Uh, if it's something that where I need more context or um, more ideas, then I, I message back and forth with the user. Uh, I do love like just casually talking to my users. I think that's one of the benefits of indie apps, right? Where you can just chat back and forth with users and it's it's way better than going like through these opaque support channel. So yeah, that's my, my general process. Oh, sounds really great. I also really love talking to users or in my case, like readers and listeners of this show and, and, and my other podcast, because this is a really motivating because you can look at your analytics and you can see, well, I have N number of people reading articles or listening or using an application, but actually talking to these people and, you know, hearing what they like about it or what they would like me to improve and so on. Like that is really cool. Like it's, it's really, really motivating. And I also really like the idea of, of continuously building up that support center as well. It's kind of similar in a way to the way I work with bugs usually is that if I get a bug report, I like to write a unit test, both to reproduce the bug, but then also to ensure that it doesn't happen again in the future. And that way I can continuously build up my unit test coverage. It's kind of similar here. You're kind of building up your support coverage in a way, right? <laughs> so if you have something that is commonly asked by your users instead of having to continuously like reply to every single one of them and you know get tired after a while of having to copy paste the same answer you kind of help yourself with that solution to just create an article for it then you can just link people to that and it must also feel a little bit more satisfying right that you actually like you're improving your overall support coverage not only solving issues on a one-to-one -one basis yeah so basically what we've established here is that help center is like unit testing but for people <laughs> right exactly <laughs> all right and on that note let's start moving into our in the news segment and we also have a stack trace arcade special for this episode as well we have lots of fun things to talk about but first let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's sponsor this week's episode of Stacktrace is brought to you by our good friends at HoneyBadger, the tool that combines error, uptime, and check-in monitoring for any website or web API into a single, easy-to-use platform. You can head over to HoneyBadger.io to get started for free, and if you let them know that you heard about them here on Stacktrace, then they will also give you a 30% discount on your license for six whole months. 
Now, more and more teams around the world are starting to embrace the concept of DevOps by continuously integrating and deploying their code and by ensuring the highest possible uptime and quality for their user-facing APIs and services. And Honey Badger, they can really make you a true DevOps hero by letting you monitor that any website or web API that you're working on continues to stay up, running, and working as expected. It'll send you automatic alerts in real time if an issue ever occurs, and if that ever happens, it will also give you lots of contextual information so that you can then fix those issues and get your service up and running really quickly. Because we all make mistakes sometimes, you know, that happens. But that's exactly when Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger's included uptime and check-in monitoring also lets you know what any external services that you depend on are having issues as well. Or for example, if a background job goes missing or silently fails, any such issues. And all of this gives you so much more confidence when deploying and running your software on the web, which in turn will let you deploy faster and deploy more often without always having to worry about accidentally causing your service to break and for your users to lose access to it. You can head over to honeybadger.io to learn more and to also learn about how HoneyBadger is a completely bootstrapped monitoring solution. It's self-funded by the team, which means that they only answer to you, the developer, their customer. There are no venture capital firms involved or anything like that. And if you do sign up for a free account to try it out, there's no credit card required. And you tell them that you heard about them here on Stacktrace, then that doesn't only support mine and Rambo's work, which we would really appreciate, but it will also give you a 30% discount on your license for six months. Once again, that's honeybadger.io. And please remember to tell them that you heard about them here on Stacktrace. And it also gives you that 30% discount. Thanks a lot to Honeybadger for the continued support of Stacktrace. All right, Rambo. So during our initial recording of this episode, this is where we went into the in the news segment. But it turns out that we now have to also do a breaking news segment because we have some really incredible breaking news for all of our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is breaking news, especially for small developers, which I think both of us would qualify and also many of our listeners probably. And it's that Apple has cut the App Store commission rate to 15% for many developers. Asterisk. <laughs> yeah, but that's a it's a good asterisk this Definitely. time because <laughs> as long as you make less than 1 million US dollars per year, then you will qualify for this, which is the new App Store small business program, which is a fancy way of saying that you will essentially get a pay rise. So congratulations, Rambo. You're not going to make more money from Chibi Studio. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's a bummer they didn't call it the indie program or something. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not all small businesses are technically indies, right? Like, it depends on how you define it. I, I know that people say, like, that's an indie studio, and I guess that's true because they're independent. Or you could say that a single developer is an indie developer. I mean, that doesn't really matter. So I guess that uh, this this phrasing makes it more like clear what they mean. Yeah, definitely. So more details about this. So if you have made less than a million US dollars, and that's uh, after Apple's commission uh, in the previous year, then you qualify for this program. And uh, they are saying here that in December, they're going to release more details so that developers can uh, see how they can qualify. 
and uh, it goes into effect on January 1st, 2021. Exactly. And also worth pointing out is that if you are new to the App Store, if you haven't yet been a developer, you also will qualify because mm-hmm. I guess that means you made zero, right? And yeah. that's less than a million. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So uh, every new developer basically is going to get this by default. And then if they end up making more than a million, then they'll start paying the what they call the standard rate of 30%. Although now I'm thinking maybe that's not the best way to call it because I, I think 15% is going to become the standard, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't have any insights into the exact numbers, But I guess it's fair to assume that the vast majority of developers make less than a million dollars per year. Uh, If not, then I think there would be more developers doing, you know, indie apps on the App Store if it was that profitable. Uh, So this is great. I mean, it's great for all sorts of people, like both studios and smaller companies that that make their living off of the App Store, indie developers like, like who are completely independent working on their own, but also people who do apps as like a side business as well. There's a lot of people who might have a full-time job and then they have some form of app that they have on the app store, which might not be making a lot of money, but this change might, you know, be significant for them as well. Where even if you just make, you know, let's say a couple of hundred extra US dollars per month, that's huge, right? Like that's great. So that's, um, I think it's going to have a big impact on the developer community at large. Yeah. And I think it also will have an impact in the app store in general, because, uh, and, and I know like many people who are not developers might be thinking like, oh, but this doesn't affect me. I don't get any benefits. Uh, developers won't lower the prices because of this, uh, which we don't know. Like it might happen a little bit, but this might enable uh, types of businesses which were previously not viable in the App Store because 15% is not little money like depending on what you're doing 15% can be the difference between it being a viable business or it not being viable so we might see things appear in the app store new types of businesses that we haven't seen yet exactly and and that's what i was going for as well with my comparison there with people who only do app development as a side business, they might now be able to spend more time on that and build better apps, or they might be able to leave their day job uh, sooner in their like kind of <laughs> apps life cycle and really go for it, like if it becomes more of a viable business. And that's just great for the app ecosystem in general. And another thing also is that I feel like sometimes people, they have this kind of illusion that other people's work is so easy, right? (laughs) Especially when it comes to developers, uh, where it's like, oh, you have an app on the App Store. That sounds so easy, right? (laughs) But anyone who has done indie development or or been an independent business owner in any shape or form knows that it's really difficult. It's not easy. Sure, sometimes you can strike some luck and and get like a lot of money, uh, you know, by chance, but that typically doesn't happen. It typically involves a lot of really, really hard work. And Having developers get more of the revenue back to themselves, uh, I think that's just great. I think that just gives developers more kind of reward for that hard work that they've been doing. Yeah, I think we uh, as humans, we still have a tendency to undervalue uh, people who just sit in front of a computer the whole day. (laughs) And not just that, but all sorts of work. Uh, So I think we should all just 
focus on our own stuff and, and not think that, that everyone else's work is so easy, right? I, I think exactly. <laughs> that's always a bad assumption to make. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about this. I'm happy not, and uh, of course it's gonna sound kind of, I don't know, cheesy, but I'm not happy for myself, but I, I'm happy for my fellow indie developers. Most of, of my earnings do not come from the App Store, but of course I am happy that, that it's going to be a little bit more now, but yeah, I'm happy with my uh, fellow indie developers, people who depend completely on the App Store to make a living, and this is going to allow them to uh, get more from their work. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't have my own app on the App Store at the moment, although I do have some in the works that I am now even more motivated to work <laughs> on because uh, of this change. Uh, but I'm just really happy for the community in general that, you know, I think this will breathe some new life into the whole kind of app store business and, and indie development in general. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Now, one thing I wanted to discuss here as well is, you know, there is an easy parallel to draw here between the ongoing battle between Apple and Epic Games and this change. But what's really interesting with the change that Apple have made here, I'm sure it was influenced, at least to some extent, by the lawsuit with Epic Games and with all of the kind of scrutiny they're under from various uh, governments around the world. Uh, so I'm sure that has had an impact on this decision. But at the same time, this does not affect companies like Epic at all, because I'm pretty sure that Epic makes more than $1 million <laughs> per, per year. I'm sure they make more than $1 million per day even. So, you know, this won't affect them. So it's a pretty smart move here by Apple to gain a lot of new goodwill and kind of repair some of those damaged relationship with the developer community in general, but by still not giving Epic what they're looking for. Yeah, definitely. And now these uh, big companies who complain about uh, the App Store Commission can go out and say, oh, we're fighting for the small developer, right? That That's completely gone now. They can't yeah. use that argument anymore. So this is uh, a genius move by Apple as well. Uh, and also, I think they are trying to repair a little bit of, of bad uh, press they got because uh, recently with the whole situation of the planet this year, Many uh, new players started doing like online events and things like that and uh, were complaining about Apple charging 30% over like these types of apps who are helping people during this time. And I think that also uh, played a big part in this. And I think we're seeing a lot of moves by Apple uh, and they're never going to say this, of course, but it's all because of the whole antitrust stuff. Uh, and there's all sorts of things that happen in iOS 14 and now changes to App Store policy and App Store commission, which we thought would never happen. Like many people up to yesterday were still thinking, and I was in that camp, that this would never happen. They would never reduce the App Store commission. And even though this is still limited to a subset of developers, it's the subset of developers who needed the most, uh, and I think it, it definitely makes sense here. And also, uh, I've uh, read on 9to5Mac that there are some changes coming to the new iOS beta with regards to like promoting third-party apps when you set up an iOS device for the first time, and also third-party item trackers in the Find My App. So we're seeing a lot of moves by Apple to try to have more things to say in their favor during future antitrust hearings, I think. Yeah, and that's a really smart move. And and also, like, 
it's kind of the right thing to do also in this yep. situation where, like you mentioned, a lot of businesses have been struggling during the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, continue to struggle. And of course, like developers are better off in general than like restaurant owners, right? Because Definitely. those people can't just do anything. They just have to shut down their business. But this is something that Apple could have an impact on and they could make a change. And I, I just love seeing this and uh, I'm just very happy. And I hope that this is just one of many changes that we'll see going forward in order to like continue to improve the development experience and, and being a developer on Apple's platforms because it has been taking a little bit of a decline during the last couple of years, but now it seems it's on its way up again. And yeah, it's just really good news. Absolutely. Now, all we have to do is uh, get some antitrust hearing to mention the lack of documentation, and then maybe they'll fix <laughs> <Exactly>. that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm really looking forward to that. All right. So I think yeah, that's our initial thoughts on this change. Really, really great news. We're super happy. Thanks a lot, Apple, for doing this. And uh, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Let's go. All right, Rambo, so let's head into the news. And what else could we talk about this week other than the M1 Mac chips and the benchmarks, the reviews, and all of the information that has come out since we last recorded? I don't know about you, but I am really, really excited right now. Like, I am counting down the days until I will get this new machine because it looks like I will go from a non-pro laptop to a faster than Mac Pro, not laptop, but computer. And this <laughs> really, really excites me. Yeah, so this is one of those situations. And um, honestly, this is it, it's rare that this happens where something seems too good to be true. Yeah. But it actually is good <laughs> and not too good to be true it, it's actually true uh so i think i was watching or or maybe uh, reading an interview with uh people from apple i i think it was uh craig federighi who mentioned that like when they were doing their testing internally they couldn't believe it and they were like no this must be wrong <laughs> 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 right and I, that's something that i've heard also in so many of these reviews is that they had to like run the benchmarks again and again and double and triple check and test with another machine just to make sure you know there wasn't something strange going on that it was really hard to believe these results because like you say like it doesn't really make sense when you just look at it like you look at this new MacBook Air, for example, which is like the entry-level laptop. It's less than a non-pro laptop, but <laughs> it's still running faster in single-core performance than any other Mac. Like, it has a higher Geekbench score than any other Mac in terms of single-threaded performance. And that is just crazy, right? Like, that is, it's not supposed to be this way. It's, like, it's not supposed to be that a thin, fanless laptop that is the entry-level machine is faster than the highest-end machine. Again, it, this is only in single-core performance, but still, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a generational leap, right? It's a complete change in, in architecture and, and not only CPU architecture and instruction set, but systems architecture like the the entire architecture of the system has changed uh and, and it's funny seeing people like say like oh you can't compare this using rendering and final cut pro because that's using hardware acceleration well 
that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and these people, I think they will be shocked when you explain to them what a GPU is, that a <laughs> GPU is actually also hardware accelerated graphics. It also looks uh, from some testing done by uh, our friend uh, Paul Hudson that the unzipping engine is there because it unzips Xcode way faster than an Intel 16-inch top-of-the-line MacBook Pro. Yeah, it's all really, really exciting. And and on that hardware acceleration note, I, I made a little joke there, but <laughs> it is definitely true what you're saying that we're moving to like a different kind of chip design in general in the whole industry where accelerators are becoming more and more common. And you see that happening all over the place. Like you have, for example, Google creating their TPUs, which are hardware accelerators for machine learning. Uh, You have Apple's Neural Engine, of course, which is the same thing on the system on a chip. And you have all these tasks now that have dedicated blocks as well in the CPU, like specific CPU instructions for specific tasks. And like... On the one hand, like you're saying, it can look like cheating when it comes to benchmarks, right? Like, oh, but it's it has something dedicated, a fast path for that. Yeah. But like you also say, that's the point. Like, what Apple have done here is that they've taken a series of very common tasks, tasks that developers do, people working on video, music, whatever it might be, whatever you might do with your computer, there's a s- certain tasks that happen over and over again. For example, handling encryption tasks, machine learning, uh, you mentioned like uh, unzipping archives, like there's all these different computationally heavy tasks that are very common. Why not add fast paths for them? Why not accelerate those? Like that's that's really where we're seeing a lot of this um, acceleration and benefit happening, again, not only on Apple's platforms, but in the tech industry at large. And I think that's where we're going to see the biggest increase in performance overall over the next decade or something. Because there's this like end of Morse law that people have been talking about, right? That just the fact that we can add more transistors or make the CPUs faster does not like double performance uh, all the time or, or increase performance uh, rapidly. So these accelerators and GPUs, like I also joked about earlier, was like the original hardware accelerator, pretty much, right? Like accelerating graphics and using a dedicated unit. We're going to see that a lot more, I think, for all sorts of tasks. You know, machine learning is a common common one now, but I think that will just continue to happen because that's where we can really get really fast performance for all sorts of different tasks without only relying on the CPUs to get faster. Yeah, absolutely. I I think uh, there's some point at which you can only do so much with a general purpose CPU and optimized software, right? And with the the M1, that's also a big part of why it's so good. It's, of course, software optimization and a really good CPU to begin with. But all of this acceleration just adds to the experience of having a faster machine that's uh, cheaper than the top of the line Intel Mac, of course, there are some trade-offs you have to do at the moment because the M1 Macs that are available are entry-level Macs. So they don't have some of the niceties of -of top-of-the-line Macs like additional I.O. and more GPU power and the ceiling for memory is 16 gigs, even though from what we've seen from reviews of these Macs and my own experience running with 16 gigs for the longest time here on an Intel machine is that it's a problem for very specific workflows, mainly like if you need to open a 
20 gigabyte Photoshop file, then you might be in trouble. But other than that, it's fine. Right, exactly. And something to keep in mind as well when it comes to the memory is that, number one, you have the memory integrated into the chip itself, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a shared memory architecture between the GPU and the CPU, which has a lot of benefits in terms of just moving data around and how fast data can be transferred between graphics tasks and CPU-bound tasks. But... You then also have the SSD, and the SSD's speed is also going to play a huge factor here because when you have to swap memory, if you're doing that to a spinning drive, that's going to be really slow. And I think a lot of people who have these you know, concerns about RAM, they are people like me and you who had computers with spinning disks. And we know like how slow swapping was and how important it was to have enough RAM to like really accommodate all of your tasks because if you had to do any swapping it would be really slow but i'm not saying that swapping is is great you know <laughs> I, I definitely think that the you know com computers should keep swapping to a minimum and i'm sure these do as well but the fact that they have lower ram ceilings might not be as much of an issue because they have those fast integrated ssds everything is built you know as one unit and I think that can also help mitigate this issue, even if the RAM might not be enough for a given task, it might not be as bad as it would be in other situations. And I think the reviews and the benchmarks and everything is kind of backing that up as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think I commented about my uh, 16 gigs of RAM with someone, and I don't remember who the person was, but I think their comment was like, oh, your Mac must be swapping all the time and you're not even noticing. Yeah, that's the point. I'm not even noticing. <laughs> <laughs> so why? So what? Like if it's swapping and it doesn't make a difference, like I think um, Matthew Panzerino from TechCrunch uh, said something about like RAM is probably going to eventually become obsolete and not that computers won't have any RAM. <laughs> like, it comes with zero gigabytes of RAM now. Uh, <laughs> it, like, the concept of having to worry so much about how much RAM that you have will become obsolete. And you can see that in uh, computers like the iPhone and iPad. They have very limited uh, RAM, and they don't even do any swapping. There's no swap on iOS. Uh, of course, there is on the Mac, even with the M1 chip, at least as far as I know. But yeah, the um, the RAM doesn't seem to be an issue at all with uh, these Macs. And it probably won't be, and it probably won't be a number we care about so much going forward. Yeah, and of course, you know, this all depends on how you use your computer and what kind of routines you have. Because I know there are some people, they just love to keep, for example... 200 Chrome tabs open at any given point, and they expect all of them to run all the time and to be instantly available. I'm not that kind of person at all. I always close my browser, you know, multiple times per day. I don't keep many tabs open, and I tend to work in one app at, at any given time. That's why the iPad works so well for me, because, you know, you always run one app or two apps side by side, because that's just how I tend to work. Uh, so I don't think the RAM will be a big issue for me. I did opt for the 16 gigabytes, which I think, you know, Anyone who's who's a developer should probably do that yeah. if you want to get one of the, these machines. And I did that as well. I also upgraded the SSD to one terabyte. And I just think it will be a great system like that. And yeah, again, I'm really excited about getting it. And I'm also very, very relieved to see these reviews and uh, see these results. And it doesn't feel like the RAM will be an issue. And you know, I'll, I'll report back when I've been using it myself. But so far, so good, it seems. 
Imagine how relieved I was when I saw the positive reviews of the HomePod Mini, especially the sound quality, knowing that I ordered eight. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Future Ramble headquarters would have not been the same if the HomePod Mini would have been a flop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about software, which I think is where most of people's concerns are in terms of these new Macs. And maybe we can also comment a bit on the developer situation, which I think is the most affected, actually, by this new architecture. Uh, so let's start with iOS apps. Uh, what do you think about iOS apps running on the Mac and, and these initial reviews of them? It, it doesn't seem like it's a very good experience, but I don't think that's news, right? Right. And as far as I'm concerned, at least what it seems like is that they're kind of a bonus, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like you have to use an iOS app. It's you get all these iOS apps if you want to use them. So if there's an app that you were previously using the website for, for example, then you can use the app now. Or if there's a game on iOS that you wanted to play on the Mac, then you can do that as well. And I think these new machines, I mean, they don't have the same insane graphics power as they do in terms of CPU. They, they have good graphics capabilities, but they are not like top of the line in terms of graphics. But they're probably pretty capable, and I'm definitely planning to play a lot of iOS games on my new Mac Mini to connect a controller to it and to play it on my 4K screen uh, because that's something I've done with my iPad, for example, but now my Mac Mini is going to be always connected to the display, so it's just going to be simpler to play it on that. And I think the graphics performance should be enough for like Apple Arcade games and different iOS games and things like that. So that for me is just a bonus. I... I'm not sure. We, I guess we'll have to wait and see like how it's going to pan out, but I hope it's not going to be like all developers who are building software for the Mac are now going to abandon that and just build iOS apps because they <laughs> run on the Mac anyway. I don't see that happening, so I'm not so worried about it. Uh, so as long as it's purely additive and a bonus, then why not? You know, the only app I would like to abandon their Mac version and just release their iOS version as is, they, their iPad version as is on the Mac, is Slack, because then it wouldn't be Electron. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I can think of a few apps that I would like to use on my Mac, like uh, one very uh, self-centered example is Chibi Studio. <laughs> so right. um, we don't offer a, a Mac version because we don't think it's uh, worth even the effort to make a Catalyst version, even though we do have a Catalyst version we use internally for, for testing because it, it makes some of our workflows faster with publishing stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I would totally use it just for testing and to be able to uh, use it for the workflows we use the Catalyst version for now because our Catalyst version is basically just the checkbox. It doesn't have anything extra in there. Right. Um, and another app I would really like to have available on the Mac is Overcast. And I know that uh, Marco uh, did uh, leave Overcast in there, so it is available. And uh, I've seen on the review from The Verge that they actually mentioned Overcast running on the Mac as like one of the best experiences they had with an iOS app on the Mac. And it's one of those, those cases where maybe it doesn't make sense for Marco to make a version exclusive for the Mac because there isn't enough demand to justify the cost of developing it. But the iOS version works well enough where if you want to play a podcast you have on Overcast on your Mac, you just do it. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of really what I mean when I look at these as a bonus. Like, being able to run Overcast on my Mac is a bonus. It's a really nice new thing that I wasn't able to do before, and now I can do it. And so what if the UI is not perfectly Mac-like because it's an iOS app? Like, that's fine. And and the same thing goes for games. I mean, with a game, you typically just have completely custom UI anyway. And for something like Overcast or other utilities, the functionality is really what you're there for. The user interface is maybe not the most important part. It's not the most important that it feels completely Mac-like, you know? And mm-hmm. that's just why I think it's a it's a good thing overall. Again, I haven't used it myself yet because I'm still waiting for my Mac Mini, so I'll I'll have to report back on my actual opinion about these things. But let me ask you something, Rambo. Um, given that you have an app that will be affected by this or be a beneficiary of this, <laughs> it depends on how you look at it. Are you planning to do any sort of t- like lightweight tweaks if needed? If your app, if that would make your app run better on the Mac, would you be willing to do that? Yeah, I'll have to see what it's like uh, before deciding on that. But uh, if I do notice like some things that I could improve with minimal effort, then I'll definitely do it. And for those who are wondering, we do have uh, a developer audience as well. You can check at runtime if you're running on a Mac when you're on iOS app. There is an API on process info. I think it's actually like is iOS app on Mac or something like that. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's pretty self-explanatory and you can tweak things at runtime. Um, there are like a few things that even our Catalyst version has that I, I could tweak to make it better for Mac users. Like I think, and this is actually pretty common for iOS apps to do, I think when the user has declined notification permissions, but then they go into the apps settings and they want to turn it on we send them to the uh, system preferences which on ios is called settings Uh, so we send them to the settings act but if you try to do that on the mac it just throws an error because there is no settings app and the url scheme doesn't work so minor things like that which are easy enough to just put uh, a nif just put a nif john how hard can it be right <laughs> and then fast forward three months and you have these ifs all over your code base <laughs> like if mac else if mac else <laughs> yeah then just make a catalyst version right just do it we should come up with like the maximum amount of if is ios app on the mac you should do before deciding to do a catalyst version ah right the empirical stack trace if threshold (laughs) yeah i think that would be great uh, if we could come up with something like that and yeah and i'll report back when um i've uh, actually used the app on uh, the mac uh, with apple silicon and we'll see how it goes Awesome. So one more thing I really wanted to talk about, because we're probably going to talk about these Macs for a while now, especially once we get our hands on them and we can have, you know, our own experience. We can talk about what it was like, like using them for development and things like that. But one thing I'd love to speculate with you right here, right now, a little bit on is what this means for kind of the future of the Mac and also the future of computers in general. We're getting really high level here, <laughs> Rambo. We talk about the future of computers. So there's been a lot of comments and, and I, I, I find these fascinating where, you know, when the iPhone was released, there was this kind of urban legend, if you will, or, or thing that companies like BlackBerry, they you know, got the iPhones and they were like, how are we going to respond to this? Like, let's scrap our entire strategy. Let's try something new. Let's pivot and so on, right? And other Mm -hmm. companies as well. Do you feel like 
this is Intel's kind of BlackBerry moment? Do you feel like... Because now Apple has basically really leapfrogged Intel in performance in general, especially for Macs. Like, these are so much faster than any other Intel Mac. And especially when you're just talking about that these are the low-end, quote-unquote low-end models, which are still faster than the pro computers... Do you feel like this poses a significant threat to Intel going forward? And what do you feel like, how do you feel like this will kind of impact the overall computer industry that Apple has now moved into making their own chips? Do not make stock decisions based on what I'm about to say because I'm not a market analyst. That's the disclaimer. <laughs> so <laughs> Good, all right. <laughs> so um, it, I, I really don't know enough, I think, about how the market works uh, in this area to, to make like an informed uh, opinion here. But um, I'm going to say that in, in my limited uh, view of this, Probably this won't affect Intel that much. I think it, it will affect Intel in terms of what uh, they got from Apple. Like, of course, they Apple won't be buying Intel chips anymore starting soon. Like, most probably by the end of, of uh, next year or maybe the other year tops. Like, Apple won't be buying Intel chips anymore at some point. Uh, and of course, that's a big deal for Intel, I guess. Like uh, they probably sell a lot of, lot of chips to Apple. Uh, but this is where I think the uh, phrase "only Apple can do" applies uh, <laughs> right. in in reality. Like because I can't see a company like Microsoft pulling something like this off. Uh, they do have ARM machines, but the software story uh, for them is completely different at least from what i've heard from other people i've never used one myself but i've heard that like they use emulation for intel software and of course i i think even though apple treats developers not very well most of the time uh, like we we tend to talk about here um they do have a very dedicated developer ecosystem and developers jump in on what Apple is working on, and many, many, many apps are already available for Apple Silicon natively from day one, and other like top apps like uh, Photoshop, there's already a Photoshop beta built for M1 natively, so if you are a little bit adventurous and you want to try it out, you can download the beta and, and check it out. But even then, Rosetta is apparently really, really good. Uh, it does some very interesting, like, static translation, it seems, where it, it doesn't, like, emulate an Intel chip, but actually translates the instructions when you launch the app. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it seems like voodoo magic. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't see any other company even trying something like this, because I, I think... There's such a level of integration that needs to happen, especially in terms of third-party software, that really only Apple can do in this case. Yeah, that's definitely true, I think. And it's definitely like a sum of its parts, right? It's not just that they invented this one CPU that is way faster. It's everything combined that makes things work so well. And when you're assembling something from separate parts, then that's definitely more difficult but i'm also thinking in terms of just like power efficiency in terms of like performance per watt i'm thinking just about sheer clock speeds and 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 performance that way like this does seem to be 
taking a very different direction than the x86-based CPUs. And I'm just thinking if you start like extrapolating that into what's going to happen in the next two, three, four, five, ten years, you know, if Apple keeps on this trajectory and, you know, we're not just looking at one data point here, we're looking at their entire history with the A-series of chips, you know, this looks like if Apple just keeps going like this, they could really have a profound impact on, like, what is the expected performance from a computer CPU. And although, you know, not everyone's going to run and buy a Mac then, of course, but, you know, if that happens and if the overall kind of opinion in the industry becomes that, you know, Macs are 10 times faster than PCs, then that's a huge problem for Microsoft, Intel, and everybody else who is not building Macs. And I'm not saying this to say that I hope that this happens. I definitely hope that there will be a lot of competition because I always think that competition is great, especially in things like this, because you want companies to keep pushing the technology forward all the time. But I'm also going to guess that right now, you know, this was maybe not the best of news for a company like Intel, and they're probably going to have to do something to kind of like react to this. Yeah, I think maybe we can look at what it looks like in the smartphone market where uh, I'm pretty sure from, from reviews that I sometimes watch about uh, flagship uh, Android devices and, and things like that, where they're usually like pretty close, but usually like a generation behind Apple. Like they're usually like the latest flagship Android chip is as good as like the A12 or something, it, or the A13 maybe now that the A14 is out. Maybe we can get somewhere near that for computers, like real computers. What's a computer? Uh, so laptops <laughs> and, and desktops. But then there's also the architecture aspect because these Android phones, they are also using a variant of the ARM instruction set and using, I, I believe, also... Um, a unified memory architecture, uh, but maybe not. Again, I'm not familiar with those devices, but uh, yeah, I, I think for PCs and, and, and laptops, I, I think it's going to be hard to, to get even close to this. Yeah, the one way that the Android ecosystem is kind of solving this issue in a way is that they're kind of throwing more hardware at the problem. Mm -hmm. So if you compare an iOS device uh, to an Android device, the iOS device typically looks like it has way lower specs. So for example, like the iPhone 12, I believe has like four gigs of RAM. And it's very common for Android devices to have like 10 or 16 gigs of RAM. And then you look at that and you're like, well, it looks like the Android phone is faster, but it's just because they just added more RAM in this case and, yeah. and kind of threw hardware at the problem. And what Apple has proven here is that they can do more with less kind of in a way, right? Like a smaller chip, way lower powered. It doesn't even have a fan in the MacBook Air, but it can still outperform the competition. And that's kind of what I find really interesting here. And, you know, there is a very big difference also when it comes to computers, if we start even broadening the scope and thinking about things like servers and those sorts of things, like performance per watt has a really important kind of economical implication there. And I don't see Apple starting to build dedicated servers anytime soon. <laughs> but if the best case scenario here, I think, is that this pushes the entire computing industry forward. Everyone is kind of focusing on innovating in this field now, and now that Apple is kind of, you know, taking this kind of leapfrog move, and hopefully we'll just get faster computers and servers and everything overall, because that would just be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what this looks like. Uh, and uh, going back to, to the software part a little bit, um, for our developer audience... 
if you are looking for a Mac where you need to run things like uh, Docker or even uh, installing packages using Homebrew, it looks like uh, you should probably wait a little bit, at least not like upgrade your main work machine to M1 just yet, uh, because those things will still take some time to, to be ready, uh, according to reports by the people behind Homebrew, the maintainers of Homebrew, and also um, Docker itself. So if your workflow relies heavily on those tools, it looks like you'll still need to wait a little bit to be able to go all in on M1. Yeah, exactly. Thankfully, my workflows don't evolve around those sorts of tools at all. Uh, all I need is a Swift compiler, and I will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's the benefit of controlling your entire tech stack yourself, like, you know, with Publish and everything. As long as I have a Swift compiler, I can run my website, I can deploy it, I can work on it. And uh, all of my other projects that I do for clients and things like that basically just require Xcode. Some of them require, like, a local host server or something. That might be a problem, I don't know. But otherwise, I will just find a way to, like, you know, use use my non-pro laptop as a server or something like that. <laughs> I'll figure it out, but I don't think that will be an issue for me. But it's good that you bring that up because that's true for any like big chip transition. There is going to be some kind of obstacles here and there, and most of them, I think, will be fixed over time. But you will be an early adopter if you jump in immediately. And, and I'm typically very conservative about these things. Like I typically wait like five or six months before even updating to the next major version of macOS. And here <laughs> I am buying a new M1 Mac with Big Sur, not on day one, but you know, a few weeks after they, they were launched, I'm going to get mine. And I'm still pretty excited about it. So yeah, we'll see how it's going to go. But it looks like so far... It's smoother than I would expect, and I guess Rosetta 2 is is much to thank there, that it has such a powerful, fast, backwards compatibility story that a lot of these obstacles are removed or at least mitigated because of that. But yeah, certain developer tools will definitely be an issue for sure. Yeah, it's uh, the, the thing where if you are the type of person who needs these types of tools, you are more likely to know about these limitations and be ready to either work around them or wait, right? If you are the person who uses uh, pages, numbers, keynote, and Slack, then you're going to be fine. And you're, you're not even going to know about these things. Exactly. Cool. So like I mentioned, we're going to probably discuss the M1 a lot in the future, especially as we get our hands on the hardware ourselves. Uh, but now let's talk about some very different hardware, because we actually have a special edition of Stacktrace Arcade for this episode. Ooh. So Rambo, speaking of uh, fast computers, I actually have a new computer, if you could call it that. What's a computer <laughs> in my house? Uh, it is a very fast computer. It also has a unified memory architecture, actually. Oh. Uh, it has a very powerful GPU, very powerful CPU. Uh, it is performing remarkably well, and I'm really excited about it. Can you guess what it is? Well, I can see in the show notes, so it's not fair. But, <laughs> you don't uh, have to guess. <laughs> I suppose it's a gaming console of some sort. <laughs> it is a gaming console. So I have got the Xbox Series X, uh, the new mm. Xbox from Microsoft, one of the two new next-generation consoles. Uh, I've had it for a week now. I got it on release. This is uh, one of the very rare occasions that I buy a new console on release. I think the only time I've done that before is for the Switch. Uh, and I did that because I was traveling so much at the time and I was just really excited to play Zelda. Uh, so typically I wait a little bit uh, before buying a new console, but this time I got 
the Xbox Series X on day one. Uh, and I've been having so much fun with it during the past week. I've been playing more video games during the past week than during the past year, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Uh, before I dive into like reviewing this and talking about my first impressions of it, I just want to ask you, Rambo, like, are you excited at all about this new console generation? Are you planning to get any of these consoles? Uh, or how do you feel? Because I know you're more of a kind of casual gamer. So I've been so busy with uh, work and, and other things recently that I haven't really looked into them too much. I have seen some stuff about mostly the PS5 because I already have the PS4 and uh, I'm more of a PlayStation type of person, but I uh, have uh, seen a review of the PS5, actually more than one, by MKBHD, and something that really caught my attention about the PS5 specifically, and I haven't seen anything about the Xbox uh, Series X, uh, to be honest, but one thing that caught my attention was the new thing with the controller, where it will vary the resistance of uh, the uh, buttons, the, the triggers, depending on what's going on in the game. And I just thought that it's a nice use of haptics and and something i didn't think about before but one of those things where i saw it and, and i was like oh how how come no one thought about it before uh, so i, I do find the, the ps5 quite interesting and also i like the design and uh, i've seen some pictures of the xbox series x that, that that's the extent that i know about it right uh, <laughs> and i do find it uh, quite pretty as well and I do like that it's smaller because the PS5 is like a huge thing. Like it, it will definitely be something that that's seen. You can't hide it. Yeah, that's very true. And and also the design of the PS5 is very calling attention to itself, right? Yeah. Like the way I've positioned my Xbox is kind of behind the TV. So it sticks out a little bit. You can see it, but it's this kind of black monolith design. Mm -hmm. So it blends in very well. Uh, so it doesn't call a lot of attention to itself. It's kind of just this black box, right? It's right there in the name, Xbox, right? <laughs> and just to, to talk about what I'm thinking about, I will probably be getting the, the PS5 eventually, but probably next year. Yeah, I'm also planning to get the PS5 as well. I mean, I will get the PS5, definitely. <laughs> because, you know, I'm a gamer, I love playing video games, and there's this whole idea about, like, console wars, right? Like, that you have to pick between the Xbox or the PlayStation, and you have to be super uh, loyal to each platform, and you can never jump to the other one. But that's actually exactly what I've done for the start of this generation. So, I've been using a PS4 for the last generation. I did not have an Xbox One, which was the previous Xbox. Uh, and that's actually a big part of why I got this one to begin with, because one thing that Microsoft has focused so much on is backwards compatibility, kind of similar to Apple here. And, you know, we were just talking about how great it is with Rosetta and backwards compatibility. Uh, and the same thing is true here. So the new Xbox Series X, it's completely backwards compatible with not only the previous Xbox, but with all Xboxes that were pretty much ever made. So mm -hmm. you can play games from all of the Xbox generations and they are even automatically remastering them. So oh. you get this thing called auto HDR. So even a game from like, 
you know, the early 2000s has HDR, which is wow. really incredible. And it will do like really well upscaling to 4K. Uh, it will improve the frame rates of uh, various old games that have been patched. So, for example, just earlier today, I was playing some of the older Halo games from the early 2000s, running now in 4K and 120 frames per second, which is just like unbelievably smooth. Nice. So that's a big reason why I got this one, because since I didn't have the previous Xbox, there's so many games that I haven't played. And, you know, being a gamer, I love to play games and I love to play different kinds of games. And another thing that Microsoft has here is that they have this service called Game Pass. And I think that our listeners is probably a little bit familiar with the service because it was in the Apple-related news recently, mm -hmm. because Microsoft wanted to bring that to iOS as part of their streaming initiative. But they couldn't, right? <laughs> and uh, so here is the Game Pass service, but running on the Xbox. So what it means is you pay a monthly fee and you get access to this entire catalog of games and you can just download them. And the cool thing is you can download them from your phone. So for example, the other day I was watching like a review of a game that I was interested in and I saw it was on Game Pass. So I just opened up the Xbox app on my phone. I tapped install to the console and then I got a notification on my watch when it was ready to play. Nice. <laughs> that really felt like living in the future. I was like, <laughs> that whole 4K, 120 frames per second, that's, that's nothing compared to getting a notification that my game is ready on my watch that is the true future <laughs> yeah i really like that the feature and it's something that many companies don't take advantage of but uh, when you have uh, a platform like uh, xbox and microsoft has you can do that sort of stuff like you don't you don't have to be that's the the type of integration i would expect from like an apple console like and, and you right. don't even get yeah. that like i can't get uh, an app that's only available on the Apple TV on my Apple Watch. Let's say there's a game and it's only for the Apple TV on, on my iPhone. I can't tell it to install that game to my Apple TV. It will, and, and the worst part is if I download something on my iPhone that is available on the Apple TV, it will automatically download on the Apple TV. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> uh, so Xbox has better integration th than Apple in this case, and they are not even the owners of the platform. So that's really nice. Exactly. And especially when we're talking about like 120 gigabyte games. Yeah. And even though I have a really fast internet connection, that still takes a while to download. So mm -hmm. it's really nice when the games are released, you can just go ahead and download them, even though, you know, your console, you might be away from it, or you might just be sitting in your office and you want to play later like me, and you're too lazy to walk over to the living room and actually download it on the console. <laughs> you can just do it from your phone. It's really convenient. Yeah. So uh, other kind of first impressions, one thing I've been really impressed with is they have this feature called Quick Resume. And this also ties into some of the things we were discussing earlier around like memory and storage and the speed of storage. So the Xbox has this thing called the Velocity Architecture, which is the integration of the SSD, which is a custom-made SSD that is really fast, and also a shared memory architecture as well. Uh, so just I think the PlayStation 5 does that as well. So it's very similar between these things and the M1 that they also utilize like a shared pool of memory, even though the Xbox Series X has some memory that is like marked as GPU optimized. So I guess that's a little bit a bit different. But what I'm getting with all of this is that the, the practicalities is that it's really, really fast to launch games. There are very few load times in games. So when you're jumping between levels or you're fast traveling in an open world game, or if you die and you want to start over, it's almost instant. And you can also have multiple games running at the same time and it will quick resume between them. So for mm. example... Once my girlfriend found out that this Game Pass includes The Sims, mm. then she 
was immediately very interested in this console. <laughs> so she's been playing it almost more than me. But the cool thing is that jumping between the games that I'm playing and the game she is playing is instant, almost instant, and it saves the state. So we don't have to worry about like, you know, saving the game or something like that. We can just jump right in between. And that is so cool. Like that is such a nice benefit as well. So overall, like combining the power of the console, the speed, the whole integration with the phone app and everything, the game pass, the quality of the output, like 4K, 60 and 120 frames per second. I'm really impressed with this device and I've been having so much fun with it and I'm really happy that I got it. Even though, you know, I am not saying that I won't get the PS5. The opposite, I will get the PS5. It looks amazing as well. But because I had the PS4 already, this felt like a nicer kind of start for me for the next generation and then I'll get the PlayStation 5 sometime next year. Awesome. Yeah, sounds like a great console. Um, I am not getting it just because I can't justify having like two big consoles like that. So I chose the PS5 in my case because that's what I'm used to. Since I'm not like a big gamer, I prefer to stick to, to what I know. Um, and I also have the Switch, of course, because that's such a different beast, right? Especially right now, it, it doesn't make much of a difference. But when we were traveling a lot, it also made a lot of sense to be able to carry around. But yeah, I'm happy for you. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully my productivity won't uh, take a deep dive now that I'm playing games so much. But now I see why you gave up on the article per week thing. Oh, you found me out, <laughs> Ramble. That's the true secret. Yeah, now you've revealed it to all of our listeners. So I'm just going to play video games instead. <laughs> All right, so that's my initial impressions of the Xbox Series X, and uh, we might return to other gaming-related things in the future, especially as I'll start to uh, play games on the Mac Mini, which I definitely will. So Stacktrace Arcade will probably make a little bit of an appearance here and there. What do you say, Rambo? Nice. Cool. So now let's end this episode with an Ask Stack Trace question. And this is the type of question that we've been getting uh, quite a lot recently, and we did answer a similar question a while back, and that's related to Swift and cross-platform development. So the cross-platform development holy grail is still there in, in everybody's minds, right? Like people want to use one language for all the platforms, which I, I totally understand. So this question comes from Saulo. And Saulo asks, as Swift makes its way to other platforms like Linux and Windows, do we think that we're going to see Swift UI going in the same direction? That is to be able to use Swift UI to develop completely cross-platform apps. So Rambo, do you think we'll ever see Swift UI for Windows or for the web or for Linux? Is that in the future, you think? No, I don't think so. Uh, at least not from Apple, which if we're being pedantic about the name, then it won't be Swift UI because uh, Apple owns the Swift UI name. But of course, especially now that function builders are becoming actual API and, and not like something that you have to use underscores and things like that someone will definitely make like a binding for WX widgets or something to that effect for other platforms and for the web. Uh, and you've been doing some experiments with plots for the web as well. So SwiftUI from Apple, I would say most definitely not, but something that has a similar syntax to SwiftUI for other platforms, yeah, that's probably going to happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. For example, the plot experiments that I've been working on that we've been talking about on this show, right? That's using a very Swift UI similar syntax. It's not called Swift UI because it's not. It's also not exactly the same API because I've adapted it for the context of the web. And I think that's also something that's important here is that you don't necessarily want to run the exact same API on all platforms because we've discussed this previously as well. You kind of end up with this common lowest denominator problem, right? Like if only one platform supports something and then you have an API for it, then the other platforms have to kind of pretend that they support it or like fall back to something else, which might not be great. So you might want to have something where you can still use Swift, but that there's a dedicated UI library for each platform. And given that all of these features that SwiftUI uses are proper Swift language features now, or they're becoming, then you can build these kinds of things. So you can build proper bindings to the Windows UI APIs, to WX widgets, to other kind of libraries and things like that. And I think that's probably what we're going to end up seeing. I don't think Apple is going to build a cross-platform UI library. They don't really have any motivations to do that. And you have to remember that Swift is so kind of different from the rest of Apple in terms of development, in terms of how they interact with the community, in terms of openness in general, because Swift is an open source project. It's being run completely in the open. It has an open evolution process. You're not seeing evolution processes for Apple's own internal frameworks, right? Like SwiftUI does not have an open process. It's just revealed at WWDC what the next version is. And I expect that to keep happening. I don't think they're going to open source it. I don't think they're going to, uh, you know, port it to other platforms because they don't really have any incentive to do that. The incentive of getting Swift running on other platforms as just the language that they have, because that kind of cements it as a more general purpose language, which means that more people will learn it, which means that more people can then easily start to develop apps for their platforms. So that I feel like is more like a long-term strategy for Apple and they have an incentive there. But when it comes to building a cross-platform UI library, why would they do that? Yeah, and also keep in mind that you mentioned uh, uh, the same API on all platforms wouldn't make sense. And it doesn't even make sense amongst Apple's own platforms. Like there are different APIs for Apple Watch and tvOS and iOS and the Mac. Most of the common things like uh, vStacks and hStacks are the same, but there are some specific types of controls that don't have an equivalent on other platforms. And if you want to have a SwiftUI view that will work on all platforms, you sometimes have to include like compiler uh, directives to not compile code for a specific platform because there are some things that simply are not available on specific platforms. And if you would do that for even more platforms that aren't even of the same family, which is the case here, uh, then it will be even more complicated. And the dream of write once, run everywhere was never a reality, will never be a reality. Uh, I, I think I've said this here before. I, I don't think that's a problem that will ever be solved. It can be solved to an extent, like it can be done, but it, the results are never particularly good. They are useful for very specific situations, but they're not the solution for anything. Yeah, I think so too. And also, it's very questionable, like, will Swift become a 
important language or a commonly used language on the Windows platform, for example. Don't get me wrong, it's great that it's there, that it's you know technically working, you can compile the Swift code there, and there's a lot of enthusiasts and people working on this to make that happen, and that's awesome, I love seeing that. But at the same time, Microsoft, they have their own developer tools, they have their own APIs, they have their own language, C-sharp, like, are they going to embrace Swift and make Swift a first-class citizen on Windows? Probably not. And if that doesn't happen, then you're always going to rely on third-party solutions to create bindings, and that group is probably going to be pretty small in the grand scheme of things. So then for a UI library to happen like this, a completely cross-platform UI library, you need people who are interested in the Linux side, Windows side, and the Mac and Apple platform side all contributing to this library, building it out. And it can definitely happen. I mean, open source is a really powerful thing and people can come together and build it as a community and and I would love to see it happen. But I think it would need to be something like a community-driven effort that is based on this kind of enthusiasm for people who want to use Swift on all these platforms rather than Microsoft or Apple or any other kind of platform vendor like that saying, let's build a cross-platform library for all platforms. Because I just don't really see that there are any incentives to do that. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So this has been a really fun episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, we again want to thank our sponsor, Honey Badger, for helping us make this episode possible. Uh, if you want to support the show, there are two ways that you can do that, or, or three actually. There are three ways you can help us out if you want to. If you just have a few minutes, you can either check out our sponsor, honeybadger.io, and remember to tell them that you heard about them here. Or you can tweet about our podcast, like just share it on Twitter. Uh, we love seeing that. It really motivates us. So just share your favorite episode or something or share the show in general. Or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That also really helps other people find our show and you know, also is really motivating for us to see that people enjoy it. So if you want to do e- either of those three things, then we really, really appreciate it. And for those of you who have already done that, thanks a lot. Uh, and thanks a lot for listening. That's also another great way to support us, actually, just listening to our show. That's fantastic. So thanks a lot for doing that. And we'll talk to you again next week. So all that remains, you know what to do, Mr. Rambo. Say goodbye. Goodbye. And it's available in the fall. (laughs) Does that ever get confusing for you? Like the fact that most companies, I would say, tend to refer to seasons using the Northern Hemisphere seasons, right? Like, you know, I'm in the Northern Hemisphere, right? So right now I'm heading into winter and you're heading into summer. Like, does that ever get confusing for you that you have to (laughs) translate between those two? I think each person thinks differently, but uh, to me, like... I it took me a while, but I don't really like translate. Uh, like, oh, so fall is gonna be my spring. I don't think of it like that. Like, it's I know what fall means in terms of the timeline, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But it's not right, like of course I'm yeah. translating. Oh, so if it's fall, then it's spring. I know like oh, fall. So it's like September, October, early October, something like that. Um, but it took me a while to, to get used to it. Also, something funny is that, uh, and this is something many people don't realize, uh, and I do find this quite amusing, is that like our, our Christmas decoration stuff here makes no sense. Because yeah, uh, it's yeah. all like <laughs> snow and things like that, but we have Christmas in the summer, so 
it should be different, but it's not. <laughs> so it's super funny. Right, yeah. I, I'm sure that's the same way in all places that are warm, even those that are in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Like, it's <laughs> it's just, you know, weird that you have, like, uh, these uh, Christmas decoration that is, like, a snowman, for example, but it's like, <laughs> no way you could place a snowman <laughs> right now outside. It would just melt in 10 minutes. It actually snowed here this winter. Uh, not here where I am, but in, in Brazil, like, in some places it snowed quite a bit which is rare. Usually, if it snows, it, it's very little. Uh, so it was enough that people attempted to make some uh, snowmans, and it was not good. <laughs> people need to learn, <laughs> I guess, uh, people who live in, in places where it snows frequently, like they train a lot, right? They have a lot of experience with uh, snowman building when they're children uh, and, and stuff like that, but not here. So the, the results were mixed <laughs> yeah but even like so i've always lived in places where there's uh lots of snow i mean not lots i mean because i'm from the west coast of sweden where it's the winters tend to be a little bit more mild so you still you don't have snow all the time and not every single year but still there tends to be snow but you need quite a lot of snow to build a good snowman right <laughs> so like because you need to like make it like a snowball and then roll it in the snow until it becomes large enough to act as a person but not a real person <laughs> a snow person um you need to roll for quite a while so you need quite a bit of snow but uh so i i have built a few snow people in my life but um not that many <laughs> not as many as you would think living for so many years in a snowy country nice yeah 